0: So, yeah, my name's Craig Smith. I'm your uh, token Canadian here. So, yeah, right. You're Canadian? All right. There you go. See, this place is getting better all the time. So uh, um, I teach at Simpson University. I teach, uh, I'm a professor in New Testament. So that's kind of my claim to fame, I guess. Uh, The other thing is that my claim to fame is that my wife is a pastor. Unfortunately, she's still working and living in British Columbia and I'm down here and we haven't been able to figure out how I can appease the IRS and the immigration departments of both sides of the border so that she can come here. But anyway, we're working on that. All right. Um, so we've been talking about what it means to be all in for Jesus. And if you want to be in for, all in for Jesus, then you have to be all in uh, for Jesus all the time. In order to do that, it means you've got to persevere. So I want to talk about perseverance here today and what it means. And when I think of perseverance, the first person that comes to my mind is actually Abraham Lincoln. I want to tell you a little bit about his story. Uh, When he was nine years old, his mother died, so he lived with his sister. And she died when he was 11. Uh, When he was 22, he ran for legislature at 23 and was defeated He went back into business again, and that business failed. Uh, At 25, he kept at it. He was elected to legislature. But at 26, his sweetheart died. And I think during this time, this Midwestern lawyer basically had a nervous breakdown and suffered from such severe depression that his friends thought it best to keep all knives and razors or any sharp objects out of his reach. And during this time, he basically questioned his life's calling and the prudence of even attempting to follow through with it. And he wrote during this time these words, I am now the most miserable man living. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, I shall not. Three years later, he was defeated for speaker at 29. At 31, he was defeated as the elector At 34, he was defeated for Congress. At 37, he was elected to Congress. At 39, though, he was defeated for Congress. He was defeated for the Senate at 46. Only one out of his four children ever survived to adulthood. He was defeated for vice president at 47. And at 49, he was defeated for the Senate. And at 51... He was elected president of the United States of America. So just as Abraham Lincoln had to learn how to persevere in order to reach his goal as president, we too, as believers, have to uh, persevere and face the huge challenge of persevering in a culture that's quite hostile to the kingdom of God. So this morning, I want to look at what perseverance is, what it means to persevere individually, and what it means for us to persevere corporately. Um, and to do this, I'm going to look at many of the occurrences of the word perseverance, which are found in the New Testament. But I'm going to focus on James 1, which was written, uh, read for us, and Romans 5. And I'm going to see if I can find some threads and themes that run through them. So we're going to start with Oxford, though. Oxford Dictionary defines perseverance as doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving its success. Now, this is a pretty good start, uh, because in the Bible we see this definition worked out quite a bit. You see that, um, uh, that there are lots of examples of people having a delayed gratification or persevering regardless of seeing immediate signs of success. For example, Moses perseveres with and leads hard-headed Israel into the Promised Land. Noah endures an incredible amount of ridicule as he builds an ark and prepares for the flood. Paul suffers a prodigious number for a unified Jewish-Gentile church. But as we will see, I think the, the meaning... Uh, perseverance in the New Testament is far more uh, reaching in its meaning and scope uh, than the secular understanding of perseverance. So we will discover that perseverance is a fundamental aspect of the Christian faith. In other words, if you're all in, you got to be all in all the time. Especially, perseverance is useful, or not useful, is mandatory almost for creating spiritual growth and maturity. So, that's our introduction. To start, we're basically going to say, to it's a characteristic of God. To, to, perseverance is a characteristic of God. Romans 15.5 says this, May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement give to you the same attitude with one another that Christ Jesus had. Now, this text tells us two things. First of all, it says that God is the source of perseverance. And this means that perseverance is not a matter of just pulling up your bootstraps and trying a little bit harder and and trying to sort things out of your own. This truth is basically telling us that without relying on the God of perseverance, we will all come to that point where we will run out of our own strength, our own wisdom, our own insights, our own planning, all of that will come to an end. And we will expend ourselves. Or if you prefer a different way of looking at it, we will burn out. If we don't submit our internal beings and our external beings to God. Unfortunately, most of us have a very high capacity of self-sufficiency and independence and pride, and we're quite unwilling to submit to the persevering power of God. This is why I really love the 12-step program, of which I went through, because it requires us to admit our powerlessness before God and the need for his strength to persevere one day at a time. Amen? Amen. The second truth in this text is this. Christ is the paradigm of perseverance. You might think to yourself, you would think being the son of God would be quite easy to persevere, wouldn't it? I mean, heck, if you're the son of God, that should be no problem living on earth. That would be very true if you weren't simultaneously fully human. Okay? Okay? And I suspect that for Jesus, we know little about his, his uh, life before his public ministry, but, or even how much he had to persevere. But we see quite a bit uh, about Jesus in his public ministry that's recorded in, in the Gospels in particular, of how much he had to persevere. And I like the one uh, which starts with the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And I love how Mark translates that. Because he has it that Jesus is being tempted for the entire 40 days. And the reason he does this, he wants to highlight how difficult this particular situation was for Jesus. And it's interesting, Mark uses this language. He says that God, the Holy Spirit, cast him out into the desert. Exactly the same language that's used for casting out demons in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is all about power encounter. Jesus had a power encounter in, in, the, uh, in the desert. So God leads, actually leads Jesus into a situation in which he'd have to persevere. And then the next really big persevering moment for Jesus, though we had to go through a... And there, probably of even greater magnitude, he has to choose God's will not his will. But in Jesus' public ministry then, not only does Jesus have to persevere under the pressure of demons and Satan and and all these principalities and powers, but he has to persevere with people too. Uh, Time and again, Jesus is patiently uh, having to endure with his disciples and other people because of their hardness of heart and lack of spiritual discernment and faith. Bottom line is, to persevere in this world is not easy, even if you're the son of God. So, most people want to know the answer, how do I persevere? But before I get to the question of how do I persevere, I want to look at the question of why is it important that we persevere? Does perseverance serve a purpose? Is perseverance necessary for the Christian life? And I think if we know the answer why, there's a really good chance that we'll be more willing to choose to persevere and, and, and seek that as part of our ongoing daily life. Interestingly, there are many passages in the New Testament that talk about the need to persevere with the hope of a future eternal life. So, for example, in Romans 2.7, It says this, Those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. There is a reward in heaven for those who persevere in the present until the end. The book of Revelation is full of these kinds of references for the need to persevere in order to get the goal, which is eternal life, to live in eternity with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet, it is John in the book of Revelation who alerts us to a potential danger. And it's this I see your perseverance, but you have lost your first love. You see, the danger about perseverance is that you can try to do it in your own strength and lose God in the process. Perseverance is not something that comes out of our love for God. It is something, or, but not rather, it is something that does come out of our love for God, and it is not something that can replace our love of God. Okay? So there are lots of references about persevering in order to find the future goal, but most of the references in the New Testament are about the need for persevering in the present as part of God's transforming work in us. So there are many times when the authors in the New Testament will speak of the need to persevere as a regular part of the Christian life. But James goes so far, as we saw, that to consider those who persevere as those who are blessed. Really? Why would James think this? And then he uses Job as an example. He uses Job as an example of someone who had to persevere, and he points out that at the end of his life, That what the Lord brought about was finally much better than what he had initially. And yet he lost everything lost family, he lost his whole livelihood. So he concludes, though, Job at the end. Job is quite a book to read, 42 chapters of hard stuff. (laughs) And he concludes that God is full of compassion and mercy. And he believes that to persevere in the present means that there will also be a blessing in the present. Now this is a tricky passage because a lot of people want to take this to mean that if you persevere in the present, you're going to be financially blessed in the present. And I don't think that's a correct uh, correlation. The word that's used for blessing almost invariably means approved. You're approved. God approves people that persevere in this way. Same way you see the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In other words, approved are those who are characterized by poor poverty of spirit. Humility, basically. So I think what's happening here is that James thinks that Job came to a fuller and deeper understanding of four things through his life of perseverance. And they're these. First, through perseverance... He gained a deeper understanding and a fuller understanding of who God is. Secondly, he understood more clearly who he is in relationship to God. Wisdom is great and rather rather he understood at the end of his ordeal that God is creator, he is a creature. He is simply an expression of God's creation. The third thing, That Job recognized and learned through this ordeal. He found a new orientation to life. He discovered what it is to truly, what is truly important in life. He knew wisdom was great, but wisdom has limits. Success is fine, but knowing and being known by God is what really counts. And fourth, he established how one is to live in relationship with God. One must live humbly before God. One cannot presume to understand and know the depth of God. But one can speak honestly and openly before omnipotent God, and he will listen to our raw emotional outpourings. That's an amazing God. That's what Job got at the end of his ordeal. And so do we. So Paul actually has a viewpoint very similar to this with respect to perseverance. But in fact, I think he goes even further. In fact, he says that we are to boast in our trials because he knows that trials produces um, perseverance and perseverance will produce character and character produces hope. What's important to see here in Paul is that he believes that perseverance is an integral part of what it is to experience the transforming power of Christ. Paul believes that trials can and are even necessary for personal and spiritual growth. Now we might ask, couldn't we have something a little less traumatic than that? Okay? Couldn't we have something like, hey, could we just have a quiet time all the time? Couldn't that just be my total growth mode? And, uh, you know, silent prayer and reflection. And I would think Paul would say this. Yes, I agree. That is one part of the transformation process. But it seems to me that the real crucible of transformation, according to Paul, takes place by persevering through hardships and disappointments in life. When do you know you need God the most? when it goes wonky and everything goes sideways, right? So it seems that the persevering, that persevering through the hardships and disappointments disappointments are the poignant teaching moments for us. And that's why James says, let perseverance have its uh, maturing work, uh, a work of maturity so that you might become mature and complete, not lacking in any way. All right, so that's the why. That's the why stuff. But the stuff that we really want to look at is really the how. So I want to look at the main issue, how question. How does perseverance function in our lives? Well, first of all, perseverance is actually an orientation to life. That is to be pursued. In other words, it doesn't just happen. You have to choose it and pursue it. It comes from the hope and the belief that God works through all things for our good. Many have heard the translation, and I will be willing to burn at the stake for this one, and if you want to go through the Greek New Testament with me, I am glad to go with you on that, and I will teach you Greek, actually. When it says, all things work together for good for those who love God, I think is a very poor translation. What it's saying there... Is saying that God works in all things together with us for our good. That's a very. Some kind of Pollyanna or fatalistic way that how we look at life. It's recognizing we join together with God in every circumstance. We work with Him and He works with us for our good. What's the good? The good is always in verse 29 that we become conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Some time ago, um, I used to live in in Kansas. I taught in a university there. And uh, things got kind of hard there with a particular president. My wife was the um, chaplain, and I was the chair of the biblical studies department. And we felt that God was leading us to, to leave. And so it was a really, really hard decision because it was a great community. Um, my in-laws live next door. Now, for some of you, you'd think that was actually not a good thing. But in my case, it happened to be a good thing. And uh, we had a great community for my kids. The, the, they, were, uh, they were surrounded by uh, a loving, loving people and a great school. Uh, We both had great ministry positions, like I said, my wife was the chaplain, I was the chair and professor of biblical studies, but to the best of our ability, we discerned that God was calling us to leave. And so we left there and we ended up in British Columbia, where my wife is still at this moment. And as with any transition, there were many difficulties. There were the practical difficulties of changing from one country, not just state, I'm talking country here, guys, from one country to another. Uh, There were the emotional struggles for all of us that we were leaving behind friends and family, and there was typical issues of starting a new job, uh, challenges of starting over with new friendships, uh, whether they were at work or on the soccer pitch, or if they were in ballet or the church, your media community, all of these are challenges that required us to look back and remember that we believed that God had called us to, to persevere and go to this new place. And all of this was fine until 1 June... When we had rain, like you guys had rain yesterday morning, but it was going on for weeks and weeks and weeks on end up there. And we had three floods in less than a month. And that's when everything got crazy. We had mold growing on our floor. We had mold on our walls. We had mold on our windows, on our curtains, our clothes. Everywhere there was mold and somehow that had the power to undo us. And no longer did our house feel like a home. And we started to question whether we had made the right decision and choice to go there. We could not see the good around us because it was overshadowed so much by our immediate circumstances and the disappointments that we were feeling. And it was during this time I remember praying. I said, God, you got to give me some kind of sign or something. You know, I, I I need something. This is hard, and 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 I remember praying that, and then it came in the form of a person, Rob Decotes, beautiful man. And it's funny, my wife had been thinking about exactly the same person. And so, who should end up? I live on a farm with five other families in Christian community. That's where I live in in British Columbia. And so, who should end up? On his bicycle, he lives five miles away at least. On his bicycle right on to our farm, and there's Rob. I go, Rob, what are you doing here? And he goes, you know, uh, he went there actually to come and check on some music equipment. But I, the funny thing is, you know, I was thinking, uh, you know, you know, was he going to come on some kind of revelation? Did he see a light in the sky, or did he hear a voice going, Craig is freaking out. This is God here. Go see Craig and Ann. No voice from heaven, nothing like that. But they just—he just showed up, and we shared our experience with him, and it's exactly what what we needed at the moment. And he wanted us to see that God, in His sovereignty, was uh, involved in this entire process, from leaving Kansas to coming to to British Columbia, to even to the situation where we had mold in our house. You see, I was trying to use all my energy to figure out if I'd made the right decision, okay? I was trying to figure out if I'd made a mistake or I could have done it differently. But he was helping us to see the most important thing, that God was in the present and in our present circumstances. And then he said this to me, Craig, I want you to ask what the mold is teaching you. I went, and then I started, did I hear you right? What did you say? He says, what's the mold teaching you, Craig? And I went, then I started to say, did I ask for the right guy, God? Like, I don't know about you, but I never think of fungus as one of my teachers in life, right? So here I am, he's saying, look at this mold, what's it teaching you? And he says, God is a creative God who's always at work. in in working through every one of your circumstances. And he asked us then, think this through. You see, the important thing to remember is that God wants to engage with us. He can take us hot, he can take us cold, but he sure doesn't like lukewarm. He wants us to follow the words of Isaiah 118, which is often translated, let us reason together. I don't think that's a good translation of the Hebrew. And I think that's only because Westerners don't feel comfortable with the word anger. It literally or argue. So literally, I think what it says is, Come, let us argue together. In other words, God wants us to hash out our situation with Him. God Hates one thing I know God hates, He hates to be ignored. He can handle all of our stuff, but He hates being left out of the dialogue. You see, what happened was Anne and I, my wife, we began to turn inward against ourselves. We, and, and it seems like in times of struggle like this, we often we often isolate or self deprecate, or we blame shift, or we doubt God's goodness and omnipresence, or we run away, or we become self sufficient, or we try to anesthetize our pain with whatever, whatever choice that we have out there to use to anesthetize. But God wants us to turn outward towards Him. And in order to join with Him in this holy struggle, So the Mole did begin to teach us a whole bunch of stuff. You see, we learned that we wanted to fix it. We wanted to be self-sufficient. And he showed us how quickly that we could turn away from God and understand. And we started to blame him for our problems. Like I said, I live on a farm with five other families, and it taught our community how uncomfortable it can be uh, if we are dealing with other people's problems. But our community started to learn to actually come together, and it taught us the gift of working together and to realize that my problem was their problem. We shared it together, and that was an incredible blessing. So, through this whole process, I started to believe that God is sovereign. Go figure. I'm sure God was really impressed. He's going, whoa, Jesus, you know what? Craig thinks we are sovereign. (laughs) I've concluded that the sovereignty of God plays no role whatsoever in who gets into the kingdom of God and who does not get into the kingdom of God, like people choosing candy. Candy. But I do believe the sovereignty of God does play a role when we choose to have God in control of our lives as his followers. Because at this point, we're asking him for his sovereign grace in, and his will and not ours. And it's to be expressed and experienced in our lives. We're asking for his way forward. And at that point, he says, okay, I'll take the steering wheel. Great. Great. And if we make a mistake, and I'm not even sure what that means and if it's even possible, he can either reverse it, okay, or he can do something else to move us forward. He easily could have brought us right back to Kansas, but he did not. He chose instead to persevere forward in another direction, which is partly why he ended up here. But there are some things that we must learn and must do if this is going to work. First, We must try to never say never to God. We have to live with this posture, with our hands completely open to God. Your will be done, not mine. So we live with our hands open, discerning together with God his will for our lives. The second thing is we have to be comfortable persevering without knowing the future. How many people like that here? Come on, be honest. How many here like saying, hey, I love persevering, but I don't know what's going to happen next? Whoa, boy, I want to sign up. Yeah, that's the second thing. We have to be comfortable with persevering and living in the present without knowing the future. And third, we have to keep our eyes And our ears open to God's movement so that we can join him in what he is doing. There's a great story about William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was the um, politician that spearheaded the abolition of slavery in the late 18th and early 19th century in England. He had to hold fast to his calling Uh, and keep his eyes on God in the present uh, and follow God's lead and join him in what he was doing without having any idea what the future would look like. And one day, young Wilberforce was discouraged around the early 1790s and had been 10 years in his fight in legislature against uh, the slave trade, and he'd been defeated yet one more time and he was tired, and he was frustrated, so he took out his Bible, and he began to leaf through it, and then suddenly this small little piece of paper fell out and fluttered to the floor. And it was a letter written by John Newton, as in Amazing Grace John Newton, who used to be a slave trader. I'm sure this happens to you all the time, you know, you're reading your Bible, and out pops a little little letter from Billy Graham, or, you know, of such. I'm, I'm sure this happens all the time. But Wilberforce read it, and it said this. The divine power has raised you up. You can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and de- devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and persevere in the power of His might. You see, I don't believe that we're supposed to persevere in isolation. It takes communion with God and it takes communion with other believers. That's why you need that person right next door to you. Okay? You don't get to pick your family here. They're right there, okay? So when we take the orientation towards life by persevering in the present but asking God to help us understand what he is doing or teaching us through these circumstances, then God can use these things to transform us into the image of Christ. All right, I'm going to end with this second part. The second redemptive aspect of perseverance and how it functions is that trials assume that they'll come to a crossroads. Trust in perseverance in our own strength and wisdom, or trust and persevere in Christ by holding fast to Him, that He will use all these things for His good. We all come to thresholds, and we have to choose. You see, the other word that's used for perseverance in the New Testament literally means to hold fast, to hold on, hang tight. It's sometimes translated, be devoted to. So, for example, the early Christians in Acts 1 and 2, it says that they held fast, or they persevered, in praying and meeting together. The disciples in Acts 6, it says that they held fast, or they persevered in praying and preaching of the word. You see, to persevere means to hold on tight, like that poor guy. There's no flipping way I'm doing that. I just want you to know that. To persevere in Christ means to hold fast to Christ as Christ holds fast to you. Now, I'm going to end with an illustration, which hopefully I think will bring this out fairly clearly. That shows how important it is to hold fast to Christ as he holds fast to you. Hey, several years ago, when I was a young man, I was a water skier, crazy water skier. I mean, I skied on anything. It didn't matter if it had a board, like I'd from, from, well, I did it all, from two skis, one ski, no skis, barefooted, the whole thing, just loved it, right? One year, one year I worked in a, in a camp, and most of the kids that came up to this camp were from the inner city, and most of them had never even been to a lake before, right? And so I was at this camp, and so my nickname was Kruger, is Kruger, remains that way. And basically, when I was a kid, eight years old, I, I had a, a, a fellow that moved to us from Glasgow, Scotland. And so as a new kid, I said, hey, what's your name? And he goes, hey there, Krug. And I goes, what? I said, what's your name? He goes, yes, Steve. And I go, what? I'd never heard a person talk like this in my entire life. I said, what is this guy? I hadn't met anyone past 15 miles from my house, and this guy, I don't understand him. And I said, my name's Craig. Yes, yeah, hey, And I'm going, okay, so uh, eventually what happened was Krug became Kruger, and I have had that all my life. So I'm at the camp. So everybody called me Kruger. And so the deal was, if the kids could uh, scoot... I'll put the next one on here. If they could... Swim, I would teach them to ski. But if they couldn't, I'd just put them on a boogie board like this and they wouldn't. So I'd have these kids, they would come up to me and go I go, Can you swim? He goes, duh, what do you think? Yeah, I couldn't swim. I push them in the water, they'd fall down and they go straight down. I go, Oh my gosh. So I go in there, I grab them, I pull my son. I thought you could swim. He says, I can swim. I said, You can't swim, you can't You went straight down. I said, get us get a life jacket on this kid, and then we'll just put him on the boogie board. The rule was Okay, 20 miles an hour was tops. I don't know if anyone here been on a boogie board going 20 miles an hour? You can feel it, right? You're only six inches from the water. You know what's it's kind of, ooh, okay. So the deal was, if you went faster, this was faster, slower. This meant go home. This means cut. Okay, so everybody, I put him in. It's a gorgeous day. I got this kid in the back. He's a live wire. He says... Uh, So he knew the instructions of, you know, this. And so I went up to 20 miles an hour, and I am just having a relaxer. It was a sunny day. It was beautiful. We're cruising along. And all of a sudden, I hear this kid go, Kruger, faster! And I go, and I don't know what happened to me that day, but I'm a guy that really likes to live on the edge, and I've done some crazy things. Like, my motto in life was try everything in life once. (laughs) And there's almost nothing I have not tried in life. You can imagine the trouble that got me into. Anyway, I said, What the heck, 25 miles an hour, 25. No sooner I got to 25 and I hear this, Kruger, faster! And I said, okay, you know what? I like this kid, he's a little bit on the edge. So, 30 miles an hour. And then he goes, Kruger, faster! We're going 35, I said, oh man, I love this kid. He is on with me. I said, we're cruising 35, I said, then he goes, Kruger, faster! We're up to 40 miles an hour and we are flying. And then finally he goes, Kruger, faster! We're topped out, 45 miles an hour. That's as fast as this boat could go, right? And he is just flying along, just going like this. And then all of a sudden, boom, the boogie board takes off, and it's gone, and he's still skimming around the water, like this, right? And so he's hanging on for dear life. Now, you might think to yourself, why did I not stop the boat? I don't know, but I thought it was pretty cool watching this guy skimming across the water like that. And then all of a sudden, he just blew up, just like bang. I said, "Oh Lord, I've killed him," and I put that boat at 45 miles an hour in a total 180. Boom, came out, bang down. I came flying up to him, and I pull up and I said, "Oh Lord." And he goes, "I pull right up," and he goes, "Kruger, that was awesome." I said, "Jesus, he's alive. Thank you." <laughs> he says, "But where's my bathing suit?" Well, the good news about him, his bathing suit, he did find. It was on his ankles. He got his bathing suit back on. All right. I took him out of the boat. I I took him into the boat, and then I took him home. Now, why would I tell you a story like this? Well, because sometimes when you are in life, you feel a bit like that. You're just hanging on for dear life, and you're not quite sure who's in control and what's going on. But Jesus is in control. And he might be going a little faster than you feel comfortable with. And he might be taking you through things that you don't really think are always the best. But if you allow him to use those circumstances to transform you into the image of his son, he will. And that's what it means to be all in and to persevere day in and day out, one day at a time. And all God's people said... Let's pray. Jesus, the thing about you is that you are so much bigger than our thoughts. And that your vision for us is so much bigger than we can imagine. The way that you lead us through life is so much more interesting than we could ever lead ourselves. Help us to have the courage, perseverance, which is your character in us, so that we can live for you and through you and with you, so that we become more like your Son, Jesus. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Now we're going to have communion. Communion's a great thing. Because it's one of the few things that uh, institutions of the church that has such a powerful symbolic meaning for us. We take that piece of bread, it represents the body of Jesus Christ crushed, broken on our behalf. Substitution for us where we don't have to be that body that's broken. But instead, we can allow him to do that on our behalf. The wine represents the blood, which is also the sealing of a covenant, which means that what he has joined together cannot be put asunder. You who hold fast to this covenant that he created through his spirit is yours, which keeps you meshed to him from now until eternity. Not a bad gig. Amen? Hmm. So, when we take these elements here, we do that remembering that Jesus Christ came and gave his life on our behalf so that we might have life in the present and ultimately in the future. I'm going to ask for just a moment of silence. Paul says when we do this, we're to examine ourselves before we take communion. I want to take a moment, just to examine yourself, and let the Spirit... Speak to you anything that you feel that, he, that you feel he's saying to you that you may need to just lift up to him so that when you come to this room, you come to this moment, it's a moment of joy and celebration. In fact, if you want to go, yo, yay, I'm all for it. Yeah, have a dance. You want to dance? I'm all into dancing here, okay? So let's take a moment. Jesus, I pray that you would, by your spirit, help us to examine ourselves before you so that we come here in a way that's worthy of what you've done on our behalf. Lord Jesus, for those things that have been spoken in the hearts of individuals here, I pray that they would feel the forgiveness, they would feel the freedom that you bring to them by the spirit and may that be theirs now as they come forward we thank you for the body and blood of christ represented by these elements in jesus name so please come forward and if those it's it's open to all people and if you are a believer this is your invitation if you want to be start become a believer then amen let's have at it today and you can come forward too. The body and blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Please partake. One of the beauties about this church I'm bringing a few, is that they make space to pray. And if you need prayer for anything, man, we are all in to pray with you. So you are welcome to come forward after, and there'll be someone here to pray with you and to know that they're on your side and for you. Let me give you our benediction. Father, we thank you that you are the God of perseverance. You are the Lord of our lives, and you are the empowering spirit that gives us the grace and mercy to live under your reign and rule. Thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.